You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And today we are going to talk about something that's very important that has impacted so many of us, how to address pandemic-related anxiety. Before we dive into today's episode, we'll do a brief recap of last week's episode. So if you didn't tune in, you should definitely check it out because we followed up, I guess it was the second episode in a series of what I'm sure will be many episodes that tackle the topic of cancer. And specifically, we talked about different types of mutations. We talk about how cancer evades the the immune response. Andrew, you probably want to elaborate on that in just a second because I have probably butchered that. But we also talked, we spend a lot of time talking about the different types of treatments available and the future of treatments and where research is headed. Andrea, help clarify what I'm talking about here with the immune response. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about how cancer is you know, it's a genetic disease. It's a catch-all for hundreds of different diseases that are all related to the fact that our own cells stop listening to cues from our body and they start to grow in an uncontrolled manner. And that leads to the development of cancer, right? And so part of the progression to cancer is the fact that cancer cells are actually able to hijack and camouflage themselves from the immune system, which is normally patrolling our bodies and would eliminate cancer cells as they crop up. And so we talked about some specific examples, um, such as the major histocompatibility complex. So we definitely uh, encourage you to tune in to learn some details about the complexities of cancer and as a result, why it's so challenging to treat and ultimately cure. And this is such a beast of a topic. I am quite sure that we're going to return um, in the future. So, yeah. all right, before we dive into today's episode, let's let's chat a little bit. What's <laughs> what's going on in your life, Andrea? Well, as I'm sure our listeners know, we are releasing this a day late. You know, normally we try and do our recording the previous week for our podcast, but there's been a lot of craziness going on for both of us. So, you know, first big thing, um, I've been working at a biotech company for about six and a half years now, and it's a small company, and we have a very close-knit community, and I have a team that I work alongside, and we found out late on Wednesday last week that we are being acquired by a company that is a 100 times the size of ours. So that's, you know, potentially very exciting. Um, You know, the sector, the, the biotech sector is very similar and relevant, and we could see a lot of potential advantages to having those resources sources of you know, a company that's 14,000 people versus 140 people. But at the same time, there's 
a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of anxiety um, mm-hmm. as, as we're going to talk about today. You know, anxiety is really, you know, a, a physiological and a psychological response to uncertainty. And as someone who's, you know, been with a particular company for so many years, um, you know, there's a lot that I don't know what's going to happen over the next, you know, few months and, and year uh, af- mm-hmm. as that happens. So, Well, that's totally understandable. But, you know, as I've shared with you privately, someone with your brain and your brilliance and your work ethic, I'm sure you you have nothing to worry about. But I I understand change. I don't do well with change. (laughs) Um, I think you're similar. So I I really, I do get it. Well, I've been dealing (laughs) with some stuff too. Uh, Most recently, my, my son got sick. He spiked a fever. We were up all night, you know, sore throat and coughing. So obviously, in the middle of a pandemic, my mind immediately went to COVID. And so we got him tested. Long story short, he he was um, he's negative for COVID. It's just some viral illness that he must have picked up at school. But you know, that throws everything off when you're you know, a working mom. I have my own business, but my kids come first. So that was another reason why we were not able to record yesterday. And apologies again for being a bit late. Some other fun things that we've been dealing with, Andrea, maybe worth yeah. mentioning that there was a cyber yeah. cyber hack attempt on <laughs> on our Instagram uh, Instagram page and on my personal Instagram page which has me scratching my head a bit but we were able to sort that out we actually submitted a massive grant last week which is really exciting and, and actually um, has to do with combating uh, COVID vaccine hesitancy so we're really excited about that fingers are crossed but can I just say yeah. um, I've marked the date on the calendar where we're everybody's supposed to get notified, and if we get this grant, we are going to be celebrating. We're going to be celebrating, and we're going to pop champagne. We're going to yes. get on Instagram Live, and we are going to pop champagne with our friends. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So lots going on. And a lot of what we just described is actually relevant to today's topic, which is, again, how to address pandemic-related anxiety. Andrea, maybe it's good. Um, I know we're, we're both very transparent, but you know, maybe it's good to sort of kick things off and acknowledge that we ourselves have struggled with anxiety even before the pandemic. I have generalized anxiety disorder. I have social anxiety. I've also suffered from very severe panic attacks. Um, I've had bouts of depression. I I, I do take medication to, to help maintain <laughs> my, my brain chemistry, but that does not mean that I don't still struggle. Uh, it's an ongoing battle for me, and, and COVID has really exacerbated that. And I know you, you've dealt with a lot of the same, Andrea. Yeah, so, you know, uh, mental illness, you know, if anybody follows my, my personal Instagram or my Facebook, um, you know, mental illness runs in my family. I lost my big brother to suicide as a result of his bipolar disorder. I personally have uh, major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety as well as social anxiety. And um, actually a lot of that worsened, particularly the anxiety after my brother died. And I've been on various medications for over a decade of my life. But even, you know, even in light of all that, um, my own personal anxieties have obviously been exacerbated during the pandemic, um, which is 
totally normal. It's expected. But, you know, we've gotten a lot of questions, you know, as are heard from the herd, you know, how to cope, how to adjust and how to manage in particular these sorts of anxieties that are related to the pandemic. And we figured since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, thought it was only appropriate to address at least this little chunk of mental health. Absolutely. And, and you know, as, as we'll talk about, there are so many different types of anxiety that people are experiencing. You know, there's COVID anxiety, anxiety about actually getting COVID, OCD-related anxiety, hypochondria, returning to normal anxiety, anxiety about returning to interacting with people. You know, for so long, we've been isolated and now you know we're being thrust back into, I don't know, I hesitate to even use the word normalcy, but you know, it's it's like I have to relearn <laughs> how to socialize with people. Okay, so let, let's talk about some statistics. So during the pandemic, about four in 10 adults in the United States have reported symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder, a share that has been largely consistent through out. And and that number has increased. It's up from about one in 10 adults who reported these symptoms from January to June in 2019. So again, prior to the pandemic, there was about one in 10 adults who reported these symptoms. And now during the pandemic, that's jumped to about four in 10. So Kaiser Family Foundation has this health tracking poll, and they found that many adults are reporting specific negative impacts on their mental health and well-being, such as difficulty sleeping, so about 36% of people reported that, or eating, about 32% reported um, difficulty with eating, increases in alcohol consumption or substance use among 12% of respondents, and worsening chronic conditions among 12% percent of respondents due to worry and stress over COVID-19. So as the pandemic wears on, ongoing and necessary public health measures expose many people to, to experiencing situations that are linked to poor health outcomes, right? So isolation, which we just touched on briefly. We know so many, so many people have experienced job loss. Many people have been sick themselves or have had loved ones get severely ill or have lost loved ones to this virus. So there are so many things that are, that are triggering mental health issues. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, Jess, that, you know, these surveys are demonstrating that over 40% of adults that were surveyed are reporting anxiety and or depression. And that's that's a substantial increase. That was compared to only 11% of adults in 2019. And as you just mentioned, those reasons are multifactorial, right? We have people that are, you know, they have anxiety about being an essential worker and having to go to work and being exposed. They have anxiety about their high-risk loved ones getting sick. They have anxiety about keeping their job. They have anxiety about job loss. Um, there's so many different components involved, you know, as as our entire society has been thrust into this upheaval due to this, you know, outbreak of a new virus. So let's talk about who's at higher risk of of anxiety and, and of depression during the pandemic. 
So I, I know, uh, again, when, you know, when I was looking at some of the statistics, um, increases in anxiety and, and or depression were actually highest among young adults between the ages of 18 to 29, those with lower income and education, and minority populations, um, specifically Hispanics and non-Hispanic black populations. And Jess, I wonder here if some of that is related to healthcare disparities, you know, on top of just kind of societal healthcare disparities where we know that there is lower healthcare equity among minority populations. And as a result of that, they've been at higher risk for more severe COVID-19 outcomes due to lack of access to healthcare and things like that. That is such an important point to make. Yes, the data have very clearly demonstrated disparities across the board, disparities in access to care, access to tests. Um, we've seen disparities in, in COVID outcomes, exactly, across the board, as you said. So I guess it's really not, not all that surprising to see this. Let's talk about other people who are at higher risk. For sure, those with a history of of anxiety, right? People who struggled with anxiety prior <laughs> to COVID-19. <Hello. laughs> right. Raising my hand over here. Um, we feel especially overwhelmed during the pandemic. Also older or immunocompromised people, right? Um, mm-hmm. Probably because they're feeling especially helpless, especially at risk, right? We know that these people tend to have underlying medical issues or comorbidities, weakened immune systems, and they're a aware of their increased risk, right? Should they contract COVID-19? We know that outcomes are poorer as you get older. So it's not surprising that this may cause these people to have heightened anxiety or feelings of helplessness. And and then also we should acknowledge their caretakers, their loved ones are are going to be fearful and have anxiety about protecting them right? That, that's something else that we have to acknowledge. Yep. Next, children. I feel like we don't give enough credit to children. They, they really do absorb so much of what's around them. So, you know, they may watch the news. They may overhear conversations. They may just pick up on the concern in their parents or, or other adults' voices and, and begin to feel you know, that, that things are not right, right? Things are out of control. And, and it's likely that they're experiencing quite a bit of fear around that. And as children, they may have trouble articulating their fears or, or anxious thoughts. I know, you know, my, my, my kids, well, my, my son, who's four and a half, he's, he, he, is, he is so aware. He keeps talking about the virus. You know, he's so aware that this virus is out there. He obviously doesn't fully understand what that means, but he has so many questions, and I could tell he doesn't really know how to articulate them. I do my best to try to talk to him about ways that we can, you know, reduce our risk of getting the virus. So we focus quite a bit on on hygiene and hand washing and, and doing the, the bat wing if and when we cough and wearing masks. Um, but it's still such a scary time for them. And other people, of course, that are going to experience heightened levels of anxiety, healthcare workers. You know, I think, you know, many people have taken healthcare workers for granted throughout this pandemic, but all of these individuals who have been risking their own personal safety and lives, who have had tons of contact with infected people, have had to witness and and uh, be the last person with somebody, you know, who's dying, um, particularly early on where, 
you know, patients could not be with their loved ones due to the risk of exposure. They're, of course, having burnout. They're having heightened anxiety about their own personal risk. They're they're concerned about exposing their own families to the virus when they come home. You know, I know, Jess, you had talked about this early on that, you know, Ethan, your husband, was, you know, staying outside of the house for a while. Oh, my gosh. I I honestly, I, I think back to last March. You know, that that's when, when things got got really bad and really scary there was such uncertainty and yeah you're you're right you know Ethan we actually rented a house for him he stayed away from us he was terrified of bringing home the virus he when he did eventually come home he was showering out outdoors a really strict protocol where his clothes were they never entered the house you know his shoes his clothes everything was washed separately in a sanitary wash piping hot water we often ran it through the cycle twice um and Actually, just recently, we had a very candid conversation. We we didn't realize this, but last March, we both separately, without sharing with each other, we wrote letters to our children, honestly thinking that there was a very good chance that that we would die from the virus. You know, we, we, we were convinced that, you know, Ethan was going to be exposed at work. He was going to bring it home. And um, so that, yeah, that, that really, that really hit hard. And then, of course, you know, the last group that are particularly high risk are parents. And, and particularly parents with young children, um, you know, because, of course, parents themselves are, at, you know, fearful for their own safety and, of course, their children as well. And, you know, as Jess, you just said, you know, who's going to take care of the kids if we get sick? Who's going to be there for the children if we're unable to take care of them? And then, of course, we have the issues with schooling, right? So oh, the U.S. in particular has had a very disjointed response and disjointed policy with regard to schooling. And so we have some areas that are doing in-person. We have some that are doing virtual. We have some that are doing hybrid. And so, you know, polling from Kaiser Family Foundation back in July showed that up to 70% of parents with children ages 5 to 17 um, expressed at least some concern about their child getting sick from COVID-19 due to school activities, school attendance, um, school-related activities. And this concern, this anxiety about their children's health was higher amongst parents of color and also, you know, parents of color were more likely to say that their their children's school did not have the resources in order to safely reopen. So things like better ventilation, ability to space children out, um, ability to implement universal mask wearing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I personally experienced this. You know, I, I pulled my kids out of school for almost a year. Um, and I think so many, so many people then grapple with, you know, obviously it's a trade-off. You know, you're, you're, you're choosing, or I ch- I'll speak for myself, I chose to, to keep them home um, because of that acute risk of the virus. Um, you know, and, and it was a two-way risk. You know, of course, I didn't want them picking up the virus, but I also knew that our household with my my husband in the ER, you know, I was worried about my kids potentially being exposed and then bringing it to school. But then, yeah, it's a trade-off. Obviously, they're, they're, they then lose that the social interactions and the education. So it's, it is not an easy decision. And Andrea, maybe we should also just briefly talk about, you know, there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> I don't 
know, to have, this is a delicate subject, but mask wearing among children. We know that it is safe and recommended mm-hmm. that children above the age of two wear masks. Yet we know that a lot of people seem to think that there are risks of this, even though, no, there's no risk of carbon dioxide poisoning. And if you properly maintain the masks, there's not going to be an issue with mold. Um, there's no issue of, you know, immunosuppression. People are mm-hmm. worried that, you know, we're somehow weakening our children's immune systems. And Andrea, I mean, you could nip that right in the bud, right? <laughs> we're exposed to things constantly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so that so that's not a concern. But yeah, and, and now that our children are, or many children under the age of 12 cannot currently be vaccinated. So that opens up a ton of questions, right, right for parents. Right. What do you do if your child's I, not vaccinated? Right. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that when we get into kind of the reentry portion of, of okay. this. I'll shut up. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Um... (laughs) But um, but I think it's important to note that, you know, a lot of these anxieties are also linked to what we call health anxiety. And, and some of that could be hypochondria. And there's actually another phenomenon called cyberchondria. And so cyberchondria is health anxiety. Um, so health anxiety is just as you would expect, anxiety about a person's health. And, and obviously we see this heightened during the COVID-19 pandemic because people are worried about their personal safety, their personal health, um, the fear of illness, the fear of death. But cyberchondria is actually um, health anxiety that is exacerbated or even just simply created by the internet, by, by using the internet to search for medical information. And, you know, over the years, we've seen people joke about like, oh, I looked up my symptoms on WebMD and it said cancer, right? That, that's a mm-hmm. common joke that we've heard. But this is a legitimate, you know, psychological phenomenon now where cyberchondria is anxiety about health that's exacerbated by searching for information or seeing information on the internet. And certainly during this pandemic, we've seen not only the rise of, you know, sensational news headlines, we've seen the emergence of non-peer-reviewed scientific studies being accessible to the general public, but we've also seen the circulation of misinformation, and that can create additional anxiety. And and this is this is not just unique to this pandemic, right? We've actually seen cyberchondria increases from past epidemics and pandemics, and data have demonstrated that up to 50% of adults 
um, have reported anxiety during these past epidemics. And that includes the Ebola outbreaks from 2014 and 2016, the H1N1 influenza pandemic in 2009, and even even back to the, the OG SARS pandemic in 2003. So, you know, anybody that has these kind of underlying risk factors for anxiety to begin with, pandemics in particular can be extra triggering for people that have health anxiety because of course anxiety is all about uncertainty right we don't know what's going to happen this is an invisible illness right you can't see where the virus is so you know people who have heightened health anxiety might imagine that it's everywhere even though we know based on the science that there are certain instances certain you know environments that infection is more likely. Um, And, and, you know, Andrew, you're you're making such an important point. And obviously, I I feel like we part of the one of the main reasons that we developed uh, this podcast and our social media pages was to combat so much of this misinformation and cyberchondria, I guess, um, as a result of so much of that misinformation that spread so rapidly. But it's about COVID. And now I feel like it's it's also so much about the vaccines, right? Like I'm, I'm picturing videos that have gone viral about people putting magnets up on mm-hmm. their you know their their uh, vaccine site the injection site I mean come on for crying out loud these same people said that the the moon landing was faked <laughs> but right. but in 2021 it's it's you know unlikely that these people were were obviously faking these videos come on but anyway yeah, yeah. sorry go on no, no, no. <laughs> I mean it's, it's a great point and you know this this topic is obviously going to we're going to expand on this in the future but you know we're going to try and equip you with some tools you know to address some of this so why don't we talk very briefly about what has been done during the pandemic to address this very very obvious uptick in you know anxiety and other mental health related conditions so so the u.s government has recognized and addressed some of the acute need for mental health and substance use services um, specifically through two stimulus bills that were enacted during the pandemic so First, there was the Consolidated Appropriations Act, which was signed in December 2020. That's about $4.25 billion in funding for mental health and substance use services. And it builds upon existing legislative efforts to boost insure compliance with federal mental health parity rules. Next, there's the CARES Act, which is the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. Um, I think most people are have at least heard of it. That was a stimulus bill passed in March of 2020, and that allocated funding for, well, part of it was that it allocated funding for mental health and substance use services, including $425 million um, for use by SAMHSA, and, and SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services administration, in addition to several provisions aimed at expanding coverage for and availability of telehealth and other remote care for people covered by Medicare, private insurance, and other federally funded 
programs. There are also a few other things. Um, CARES allowed for the um, Department of Veterans Affairs to arrange expansion of mental health services to isolated veterans via telehealth or other remote care services. And, you know, other efforts to address mental health needs include substantial increases in the use of telehealth for mental health services, um, which we think will actually continue even after Mm -hmm. the pandemic. I think that that's going to be a lasting impact. You know, this, I'm not going to say it's going to replace in-person care, but I think it'll really supplement in-person care um, and expand access to people. um, I have to say, um, personally, I've been using telehealth for a variety of of things, including post-op follow-ups for things, but I've been using it routinely for telepsychiatry and teletherapy. And, you know, you get on a Zoom or, you know, whatever, Blue Jeans, whatever platform. And, um, you know, it's a secure line, but but I can meet with my psychiatrist. We can revisit my medication, my dosing. He can call in or, you know, send me a script. I can have therapy, you know, virtually. And, and honestly, mm-hmm. for many people where getting to a physical office is often a barrier, um, you know, the ability and I think the reframing of telehealth as a legitimate you know, healthcare service has been somewhat beneficial if, you know, maybe we could call it a silver lining. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you say that because I think, I don't know if you were referring to the like, I don't want to say physical, like tangible barriers to to going to an office. You know, some people can't take off of work or they don't have right. transportation. For me, it was also sort of a, a, a mental or emotional block. You know, I am hesitant. I don't like being in social situations, especially one-on-one. So mm-hmm. I'm actually more likely, I think, to seek care via telehealth rather than going to a person's office. So anyway, I just want yeah, to Yeah, no, I mean, I, th- <laughs> I, think, I think those are both barriers. Right. There are people that, you know, they don't have the the commuting time. You know, you can just sit in your office and take a one hour call. But if you had to drive there, drive back, take I mean, that's a half a day. Right. So on top of the general anxiety of the pandemic or general anxiety about these kind of intimate interactions, I think, you know, telemedicine is is the move towards it is going to allow more healthcare equity. Now, one thing before we kind of dive into the re-entry anxiety, because that's really kind of where the pandemic is moving, right? We have vaccinations that are widely available for a decent proportion of the population. We do know that there are certain people, particularly children under 12, who can't get vaccinated yet, but we're moving towards the re-entry phase of the pandemic. And with that, the kind of cyberchondria or the anxieties related to the pandemic are shifting from general pandemic anxiety to anxieties about starting, you know, normal activities again. But Mm -hmm. there are some tips that psychiatrists and therapists recommend to help cope with anxiety. And the big thing initially is building up your personal resilience. And so, you know, there are a variety of tips, but the big things are, you know, collecting information. So gathering legitimate, credible, and factual information to help cope with whatever you're feeling anxiety about. 
can help you feel a greater sense of control and help you cope better with the anxieties that you're feeling. And this really ties in directly to cyberchondria, right? We want to try to avoid sensationalized headlines. We want to try and avoid dramatic or exaggerated information about the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Then the- Sorry, nope, go on. <laughs> the next one um, would be to start a new routine. So we know that when people started to work from home, our work-life balance was completely disrupted. Um, you know, normal routines were absent, right? You're not getting up in the morning. You're not showering and putting on your work clothes and driving to the office or taking public transit. And so, you know, a lot of people are struggling with how to address that. And so, you know, even if it's as simple as you're still going to put your work clothes on, even if you're working from home, um, creating a new routine to better cope with the uncertainties and the changes that we've experienced during the pandemic can be very beneficial. For sure. And Andrea, I know we've, we've said that another thing is that it's like you're if you're home and you're working from home, it's like you never unplug, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you're always in that work mindset because now home is linked with work. Um, So I think that that's a really good tip, right? As you said, get dressed. And the other thing that I do is I've forced myself, you know, I'll, I'll carve out 15 minutes in the day. And, and for me, I go outside, I check my mail, I ha- feel the sun on my skin, and I, I water my my front lawn. It's just something that I do to sort of unplug just for a short period of time throughout the day. Next is to stay connected virtually. Um, and it may be, you know, this is sort of changing a, a bit. You know, maybe we, we're, we're starting to... Um, to re-enter the world of socialization, but we're doing so gradually, right? So staying connected virtually. Andrea, we did um, we did that remote cooking class with a bunch of our mm-hmm. friends, a virtual cooking class. It was so awesome. You know, obviously it's, no, it's not the same thing, but we got to see our friends' faces, um, you know, on, on our laptops. Um, but we, we had a night of fun. It kind of felt like it was, you know, the good old days. Mm-hmm. And that human connection really, is so important to lower stress, lower anxiety levels, and and build this sense of camaraderie. So I think it's important to try to maintain some kind of human connection during social distancing. And and the other thing is, you know, we're obviously we're having so many of these meetings virtually. I'm trying to push myself to turn on my camera, <laughs> which sometimes is hard on these zooms if I'm in my you know my jammies. But to your point, you know, I'll try to get dressed and turn on cameras. So I'm seeing people and making quote unquote eye contact. Um, next is practicing self-care habits. And this could mean totally different things for everyone. You know, it, it could be things that are, uh, you know, uh, taking a shower, blow, blow drying your hair, you know, giving yourself a manicure. It could be soaking in a long, soothing bath or listening to calming or upbeat music or having a dance party every now and then in your house. Certainly getting plenty of sleep is a very important one, actually. And also eating healthy food, eating a, a balanced diet, making sure that you're getting the nutrients that we need. But again, self-care means different things for di- different people. Um, but, but it is so important. 
And I would add just that, you know, lumped into self-care is going to be regular exercise and, um, you know, whatever, whatever exercise, you know, you happen to enjoy. Um, you know, personally, I struggled during the pandemic because I had a torn hamstring and I couldn't exercise. I couldn't run. I couldn't do yoga even. I, uh, I also couldn't cycle because I was dealing with another medical issue. But, you know, for me, I felt the toll of not being able to do those things that really helped me uh, practice self-care and and linked to that can also be meditation or mindfulness practices as well mm-hmm. another thing and I don't know if, if people will think this is cheesy but looking for the good I, I think it is really important that folks acknowledge that yeah there are terrible things that are happening you know no no one can really sugarcoat what what a year it's been you know this global pandemic but just because there's bad happening, it, it doesn't mean that good is not also happening, right? Good and bad are often adjacent in the same moment in life. So you could be sad about something, but also aware that there's goodness and happiness in the same moment about some other thing. And it's really important to look for these things. You know, we, we have to feed those thoughts and, and, and really look purposefully to think, you know, about hopeful, um, hopeful things that, that make us happy, right? Problem solving thoughts. And I don't know, for me, I often think about my kids, you know, and, and I, I have moments, where I put my phone away, and I'm just focused on them and how even in the midst of a pandemic, you know, they're happy and they're growing and I get to, you know, actually, I get to spend more time with them now that we've been at home together, which is a double edged sword. But I guess the point is that, you know, it's not tr- try to avoid this black and white fatalistic you know it's all bad there are still good moments so we've talked about pain pandemic related anxiety in particular due to the fears of the virus due to fears of job loss due to health anxiety but as as you know we talked about we're we're getting to this point where you know we're we're starting to reopen people are removing their masks you know a lot of us have a little bit of trauma a little bit of ptsd um and so it's of course normal that we're experiencing what we're calling re-entry anxiety. And so as of last week, I think this was probably the biggest change where the CDC provided new recommendations for fully vaccinated individuals. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So as of last week, CDC advised that fully vaccinated individuals, so that's two weeks after your last dose of a two-dose regimen, so that would be Pfizer or Moderna, or two weeks after a single dose, which would be the Johnson & Johnson, they're now allowed to remove their masks both outdoors and indoors 
with only a few exceptions. So the exceptions are, of course, um, transit hubs and public transit. So that would be planes and airports and buses and bus stations and subways, et cetera. That's also healthcare settings. So doctor's offices, hospitals, et cetera. Congregate care settings. So things like long-term care facilities and also prisons. Um, they also made a note that this is important to understand that these new mask recommendations don't supersede any existing federal, state, local, tribal, or even private business guidance. So if there's a mask mandate at your place of work, you simply can't take your mask off just because you're fully vaccinated. Mm -hmm. But one of the challenges with this and one of the things that's heightening this reentry anxiety is that while other countries are implementing passports to verify who is vaccinated and who is not, the U.S. is currently relying on the honor system. And as we saw during mask mandates, uh, there's a mixed bag about compliance. So, you know, we know the science is very robust. The science demonstrates that the risk of COVID-19, the risk of infection to fully vaccinated people is low. But it's not zero. There are what we call breakthrough cases. Now, these are currently the data suggesting less than 1% of vaccinated individuals are, you know, getting infected after vaccination, developing even symptomatic illness after vaccination. But of course, even fully vaccinated people may be experiencing anxiety. We're also forgetting all of these people in the country and in the world that are unvaccinated. So there are some groups that they don't have access to vaccines, right? They're not eligible yet. So children under 11 are not eligible for vaccines. But even children 12 to 15, they only just got access to vaccines as of a week or so ago. And it takes, you know, it takes two doses to get the Pfizer vaccine. Plus, we have areas of the country that have vaccine uptake disparities, particularly among rural populations and minority populations. So even if your area is has very high vaccine uptake, that may not be the case in the town adjacent to you. We mm -hmm. also have people who have gotten vaccinated, but we know that their immune response is not quite as robust. So these are people like those who are immunocompromised or elderly people where yeah, they got their vaccine, but because their immune system might not be performing as well as others, they may be at higher risk for one of those breakthrough cases. Mm -hmm. So this re-entry anxiety is these anxieties about social situations as a result of being in these isolating circumstances for so long or additional anxiety about exposure to germs as people are removing their masks even in public, in indoor spaces. So this this change in CDC guidance has obviously been very controversial. Um, and a lot of people in, in public health um, and, and other scientific disciplines have, have spoken out, feeling that it is too premature. Um, I, I just want to acknowledge here that I think the, the impetus behind the, the change was, you know, Andrea, as you pointed out, we do know that vaccines are incredibly effective. And also we, we know that many people hesitated to get the vaccines because they said, well, what's the point? If I just have to continue wearing a mask, what's the point? So just I, I just wanted to acknowledge that. But that being said, many of us do feel that, you know, it is it is a bit premature and, and perhaps we should have waited until there was some um, population vaccination threshold that was met. But 
putting that aside, this is where we are. And many of us, Andrea and myself included, have have said that we are going to continue masking, right? We are going to continue wearing masks, certainly indoors. Just, I mean, a lot of it has to do with re-entry anxiety. You know, for, for over a year, we've, as you just said, Andrea, we've isolated ourselves, avoided contact, and then to go from that to not wearing masks indoors with other people. It's just, I don't know, the juxtaposition of that, you know, it's just too extreme. Um, Mm -hmm. For me also, I just want to mention, I also feel strongly about wearing masks because as you pointed out, you have children under 12. You know, I have two children who are under the age of 12 who cannot yet get vaccinated. I am requiring that they wear masks. And so I'm going to wear masks to A, set an example for them, because I know that that's so important. And, you know, solidarity with them. If they're wearing them, why wouldn't I wear them? So Absolutely. I think that's yeah. a great point. You know, and so this this reentry anxiety is, is officially called adjustment disorder. And this is, broadly speaking, the uncertainty of the future and what we call anticipatory anxiety. So we're anticipating what's going to change. And so, you know, as these new CDC guidelines are adjusting, as more people are getting vaccinated, as people are traveling, I did I did a, a race for the first time in over a year and a half. And it was a trail race. So it's much less crowded. But I hadn't been around that many people without a mask on, even though it was outdoors in in over a year. You know, Um, I see people at work in the lab, but we're all masked and we're spread out and there's good ventilation. And, you know, even that, even fully vaccinated outdoors at a race, I still felt anxious. You know, so we're we're feeling unsettled. You know, we were finally adjusting to this new normal with um, predictability. Right. You go outside, you wear your mask, you get vaccinated and now we're changing everything again. And so. So this adjustment disorder is a stress response syndrome, which is an emotional behavioral reaction to a stress or a change in a person's life. And so as these vaccination rates increase, as CDC guidance has been changed, as warmer weather is approaching around the country, um, there's going to be readjustment and people phasing back into normalcy. And these are going to be very similar to the original adjustments that we made when we were social distancing, when we were quarantining. Um, And so, of course, we can expect that it's normal to feel anxiety about this. Right. Um, There are some tips that uh, you know, we we recommend evidence-based tips on how best to cope with re-entry anxiety. Is that where you were heading? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so we know that these new guidance, this new kind of shift to normalcy can be triggering, but there are ways to cope with this. And, and actually something that's very beneficial to those that suffer from anxiety aside from therapy and medication is exposure therapy. And so exposure therapy is doing these incremental integrations of normal routine and this can actually enhance your confidence and help alleviate some of these symptoms of anxiety so the extra protection of having the vaccine can give you a little bit of peace of mind but then slowly starting to integrate particular activities so you know if you want to continue wearing a mask in you know in the grocery store or things like that that's totally fine you know we do want to understand the science demonstrate vaccines are safe and effective. We know they're not 100%. We know that, 
you know, we haven't even reached 50% of the population vaccinated yet. Um, I personally will probably still wear masks in the grocery store and at errands and at work. But, you know, maybe I will... Uh, have a friend over and we'll be inside without masks on. But but ways to cope with reentry anxiety, um, as I mentioned, exposure to these anxieties is very helpful for treatment and also recovery. So starting to lean into the activities that you've been avoiding, but you want to ease into it. So take it slow. Something that's very helpful is trying for smaller commitments with clear time limits. So if you can't wrap your brain around a large group interaction if that's too daunting try meeting with one or two friends if you don't want to be indoors unmasked try to do something unmasked outside you know say we're gonna meet for an hour and a half we're gonna meet for two hours you know as long as you have boundaries and guidelines if you're successful with these small activities then you can start to stretch them you can start to increase the size of your group you can start to increase the time of your social activities Mm -hmm. you know I just recently attended my very first indoor dinner party and this was such a big deal for me Um, but it was with just a handful of our neighbors who we know have been very vigilant and have been adhering to mitigation measures throughout the pandemic Everyone was fully vaccinated. At least a month uh, had passed since the second dose of the vaccine. And so um, we decided to to gather and have dinner together. But we all couldn't wrap our minds around this idea of shared foods. You know how it used to be we were all grabbing at the same platters and talking over meals. And we did it a little differently. It wasn't an actual formal sit down. It was more, you know, we were all kind of standing and, and, and the host took um, great, great measures to have individually portioned food so that, again, it wasn't this like grabbing at the same platters. Everything was sort of, you know, we we had our own little cup of, uh, you know, salad, let's say. And so based on the science, you know, we know that the risk is very low. We were all vaccinated. Um, we know that the risk of, you know, fomite transmission from, you know, touching touching the same platters, it's so, so, so low. But for us, it was really a mental hurdle. You know, this just made us feel more comfortable about, as you just said, easing into things. Absolutely. And so that kind of brings us to, you know, the next rule of thumb is really knowing what your boundaries are. Like, What are your limits? Are you nervous about the number of people? Are you nervous about, you know, in your instance, Jess, you know, family style food serving? You know, is it, you know, who's been vaccinated? Who's not been vaccinated? Is it how much time you're around people? And so, you know, knowing what your, what your anxieties are linked to and acknowledging those boundaries and then sticking to that plan can, can give you confidence when you leave your home. I think the, the worst thing you can do when you have reentry anxiety is, you know, not have a plan and be surprised by things, you know? And so, I've been very um, selective about the activities I do, the people I spend time with. You know, I I know like who's been careful and who's not. And even if you're vaccinated, if you're indoor dining with lots of people and have been throughout the pandemic, I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time with you because that adds to cumulative risk. And personally, you know, I have some 
my own reentry anxieties. You know, even though I'm fully vaccinated and I probably would wear a mask, I, I still have anxiety about going to the grocery store. I'm still getting food delivered. And, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make a plan to like make a trip at some point, like in the middle of the day where I know it's going to be less crowded, but I still haven't been able to kind of bring myself to do that. So, you know, those are all kind of ways to cope with this adjustment disorder, this reentry anxiety. Other things, of course, is being very communicative, having conversations with your friends and family about your individual risk and comfort levels. So if you're only open to interacting with vaccinated people, you know, if you want to have frank discussions about what your mask policies and behaviors are, you know, accept those feelings, do these things slowly. You know, we all have to accept that things changed last year and they're changing again again. But the other thing I think that's really helpful is making a list of things you're looking forward to. So, you know, what what is the first thing you want to do once you feel comfortable? Is it having a dinner party? Is it going to a, a the movie theater? Is it, you know, those sorts of things will help you start to look forward to the future as we move into a more normal situation. And the last thing I think is to address this um, cyberchondria phenomenon, the overwhelming health anxiety related to the computer is disconnect from social media if it's overwhelming you. You know, even Jess and I have to do this from time to time and we're on there providing information to people. Um, you know, misinformation and disinformation is rife and that only adds to the anxiety. Oh my God, how many times, Andrea, are we telling each other, just disconnect, just put your phone away, turn off your notifications. It, mm-hmm. it, it becomes very overwhelming. Absolutely. So, oh, sorry, were you going to say something? I was going to say, and the very last thing is, of yep. course... <laughs> Reach out for professional help if you need it. You know, it's not, it's normal to have anxiety right now, but there are certain instances where you may need professional help. Right, exactly. And so exactly as Andrea just said, you know, we we have to expect that there's going to be some, you know, feeling nervous, worried, some level of anxiety. We're going through a pandemic, right? But we are resilient. Um, We can overcome immense challenges and traumas, even if it seems that they're insurmountable. Um, This is something that we are going to survive. That being said, if your anxiety causes significant distress, if it's, you know, chronic, if it impacts your daily functioning or is having a detrimental effect on your interpersonal relationships – then it is, a, you know, a good idea to, to seek help from a, a trusted provider. Andrew, do you want to just talk briefly about different types of of help? That yeah, people absolutely. Might so, I okay. mean, you know, some it might be a combination of everything. So, as we mentioned, this, um, you know, exposure therapy. So, personally exposing yourself to things that are creating your anxieties. But of course, we have talk therapy. So, you know, we talked a little bit earlier on the the, the possible silver lining of the pandemic is the emergence of, of telemedicine. And that could be teletherapy, telepsychiatry. That can be immensely helpful. Um, there are a lot of places that have even affordable options for people without insurance. Some insurances, actually, there's no cost for teletherapy, um, you know, 
So this is something to look look into. Beyond therapy, of course, medication can be immensely beneficial. Um, you know, I personally have anti-anxiolytic medications that I, I don't take every day, but I take when my anxiety feels very paralyzing. Um, and some people do a combination of both. And all of these things can help to, you know, moderate your anxiety and help you start to do these activities as we move into the re-entry phase of the pandemic. And guys, just please know that you're not alone, even those of us, you know, in science or, or medicine or healthcare, we, in fact, in many instances, we are more likely to be anxious, but so many of us are, are, are going through these feelings of anxiousness and depression. These are unprecedented times, you know, cut yourself a little bit of slack. But as, as we just articulated, when this does become a problem and impacts your, your life, um, you know, it is time to seek help. Andrea, do you want to take us home? Sure. So thanks for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. Um, You know, as you can guess, mental health is very important to both Jess and myself. And we will be doing additional episodes on other topics in the future. But if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please also make sure to check out our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com. We put all the links and resources that we discuss on each podcast episode up there. And you can also pick yourself up some Unbiased Science merch. We just dropped a few new pieces um, in honor of the changing season. So we've got a really cute tank. We've got a fanny pack. We've even got this cute hat that I might need to pick up. Next week, we are going to switch up the topics for a little bit of fun, and we're going to talk about the science behind tattoos. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no-nonsense, just science. 